The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, quit words back Inkthink and up listen. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 389 with guests Robert Levy and Doug Kramer, recorded live Monday, October 27th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine. The leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who says, Eagles may soar, but hedgehogs don't get sucked into jet engines. Carl Franklin! Thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. We're on the floor at PDC 2008. Hey, Richard. Hey, sir. This is, uh, Starbucks is shut down now. Yeah, yeah. The lines were just too long. The lines were awesome. Of course, this is a caffeine-driven place, packed to the walls. This morning, uh, and we're going to hear more about this, but this morning we saw uh, Ray Ozzie's keynote. Yeah, and that was the best I've seen Ray Ozzie do yet. He was motivated. Well, and I've also got the sense he's sort of in control these days, too. Like, he does his keynotes his way. There were teleprompters. You know, it had a different feel to it than I've seen before. It didn't look like he was reading anything. But more importantly, the message was all about cloud computing. Right, yeah, Windows Azure. Yeah, Windows Azure was announced today. And then some great demos and things like that, which you can see online. And Bob Muglia sure. was great. Uh, what's up with Bluehoo? Uh, that's a crazy application. Oh, uh, well, you know. I don't social... think that's the killer app for the cloud, personally. No, I don't think so. But social computing on your cell phone, right? Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we don't really have any better know framework or any uh, emails or no. to read today. We just wanted to... It's a live interview, Yeah, right? we just wanted to check in with uh, with you and tell you that we're here at the PDC. We inserted this show into the schedule at the last minute because we think it's really important. We were at um, the premiere, the coming out, if you will, of Microsoft Surface today. Right. And we got to see... Some incredible demos, but more importantly, this was the first time that Microsoft had done a presentation on Surface for developers. Yeah, very first time. And we grabbed the guys who did the presentation right after they finished and uh, got them in a room and got a chance to talk to them. So let's just roll the tape and we'll, uh, we'll listen to that interview now. 
Hey, this is Carl and Richard, and we're at the PDC 2008 in some room somewhere. Hey, Richard. Howdy, sir. How are you? I am high. We just got uh, out of an incredible session on Microsoft Surface, the premier session at PDC, Microsoft Unveiled Surface. You were absolutely vibrating. I, you, you could just see the wheels turning, everything that you were shown. Yeah, I, I love this stuff, as as everybody does. I mean, it was a stunning uh, presentation. We're here with the guys who did the presentation, Robert Levy. Hi, Robert. Hi. And uh, Doug Kramer. Hi, Doug. Hello. Great job. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. We're glad it, uh, it went well. And this was the this is the first time you've sort of rolled Surface out for developers. Yeah, we've done tons of presentations and conferences for end-user kind of demo, but this is the first time we've shown developers how they actually use this thing. So what we announced today was availability of the hardware. You can now go to surface.com, and there's order forms. You can get a table. And we have a 10% discount up until uh, November 15th. Now, we also announced that uh, for the people at PDC who participated in our session or hands-on labs that we have here, that they're going to get access to go and actually download the SDK as a preview. So I've heard $10,000, I've heard $15,000. Which is it? So the price for the developer units is 15000 and then there's the 10% discount up until November 15th for the, the commercial units when you're actually ready to deploy these things and okay. in your storefronts and mass, and then we have different pricing. And uh, just tell us briefly for anyone who's been living underground for the last year or so, what, what Surface is. Okay. So Surface is, it's, uh, essentially it's the form of a coffee table. Um, but it brings out, uh, multi-touch capabilities. So you can place a, up to, uh, five dozen different things on the surface and all of them are uniquely identified. And some of those things would be fingertips. They could be fingertips. They could be physical objects. It could just be random things you have lying around, paintbrushes, things like that. How big is the screen surface? The, the screen is 30 inch diagonal. Okay. And it's interesting that it's really only a 1024 by 768 image, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. So um, that was one of my first questions is, what's that resolution? Uh, what What is holding that back? Or is that an optimal resolution for you guys? Is, does it go any higher? What's the story there? High resolution is always better. Um, but there, there are things that you want to factor in, like uh, pricing. So we're using standard projection technology. So um, that's a factor. There, another factor is um, the diffuser layer we have built into the top of the table. It's actually some pretty complex technology yeah. in making it so that the, the light hits it from the projector and disperses in a way that's, that's crisp to read. And it's uniform. Um, you don't have any bright spots. Right. You don't but, see the bulb. Right. right. Yeah. And we also need to make it so that the cameras underneath can see the things on top of it in a clear okay. way. Okay. Tell us about the cameras. Yeah, because this is the technology that blows my mind, is that you are scanning at the same time that you're displaying. Right. So inside the box, we have five cameras that are going at uh, 60 frames a second, snapping these infrared images. And then we have a vision system that takes those images from those five cameras, stitches them together into one large image, and then processes it to figure out, okay, that's a finger, here's what direction it's pointing, things like that. Why five cameras? Uh, so we want to be able to get even coverage of every part of the table. Okay, so it's like each camera just covers a particular zone of the right. screen? Right, because if you had one camera, then you'd be compensating for angles, et cetera, from, from different corners of the table. And, and your overall total resolution goes down. 
yeah, I I think the battle of the shadow is, is going to be a tough one. Like that's one of the things you showed, which I really liked right at the beginning of the demo was it in that sort of raw visualizer mode. So we could finally see how it saw a hand and how you showed a dollar bill. It was impressive how crisp it was. I mean, you were saying it's not that good, but I'm like, dude, that's really good. Well, and for those who didn't see, tell us what exactly we were looking at there. Yeah. So we started off our presentation by giving a demo of how the surface actually works. So we went into a sample app that we call the raw image visualizer. So uh, we have APIs that let applications access the raw camera images that the camera send up. Uh, so we have a sample app that takes that image and just renders it on the screen, flipped upside down. So um, we took a couple of different things. We took Doug's hand. We took a couple tagged objects. We took a dollar bill. And the audience was able to see how the cameras recognize that stuff. So it, it's almost as if you're underneath looking up. Yeah, yeah. It's, it can be kind of spooky. Yeah. <laughs> there's my hand and there's my hand. <laughs> it's, it's a strange thing. Uh, but you don't, I mean, the challenge now is you've got this raw visualization. How do I get to a click? Right. So we have the raw camera images, which some applications really like using because they can get some rich interactions, like in our water application. Um, which is amazing, by the way. Yeah. So that uses the raw image. So as you move your hand across it, the ripples will match the shape of your hand because it uses the raw images and the grayscale wow. details on that. But more commonly, people, they want, okay, give me my click event. Right. So we have our vision system that takes the raw image and figures out in each thing it sees in the, in the image, what's a finger, what's a, what's a tag. And we report those as input events the same way that you get mouse and stylus input events. You just mentioned tags. One of the coolest things that I saw in that raw vision mode is where you, you had some object that had a tag on it, and you could tell which way it was oriented, which way it was pointing, and you actually showed a little vector going off to the side, and as you turned it and moved it, the vector turned. Um, pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, so for everything on surface, so for the tags, we're able to say, here's specifically what direction it's pointing, so you can do like a dial. You can have a physical dial that the surface you know, responds to. But we're also able to figure out the orientation of fingers. We know which way your fingers are pointing. So we can use that to figure out, oh, for a given contact, which user does it most likely belong to? Oh, right. You, and you mentioned this, which shocked me, was that depending on who presses the button to pull up, say, a keyboard, the keyboard faces him. Right. So you must be able to tell who's who, where they're sitting. We're able to approximate it. We're not, we're not able to figure out precisely which user is which, but based on the orientation of the input and the orientation that you, you put the UI yourself, we're able to, to deduce that pretty, pretty good. Doug, you did some uh, pretty cool demos uh, in this session. Tell us about some of that. Um, sure. One, uh, we did a few different demos, and the goal was to show the different layers of the SDK and the different capabilities that we expose through the SDK. Um, the initial demo was to show that our input stack and our input APIs resemble those of the WPF layer for both stylus and mouse already. So if you know how to use those input APIs, and more specifically, if you know how to use the standard WPF controls, like yeah. button, like list box, that you already know how to use the Surface versions of those because we have the exact same patterns. And you basically were able to take a standard off-the-shelf WPF sample app and with a simple search and replace using a regular expression, I think, yes. you were able to just uh, make it run. That's correct. So it was just basically replacing WPF versions of the controls with the Surface versions of the controls and then running the same app. And they typically just start with the prefix Surface. Yeah, so we, we, we tried to have a, a relatively simple pattern that people could follow. 
And then you told us that that's a bad thing to do, <laughs> which I immediately appreciated. It was like, okay, you can do this, and I'm glad you can. You made it pretty easy for us to get something up and running. But now we talk about actually, I think, very challenging metaphors, like a, the 360-degree UI that people are sitting around this. That I, I really thought hard about what does an app look like when multiple people are going to be sitting at it, because written word was suddenly a problem. You, people don't like reading text upside down. Well, now you can just turn it around and pass it around. I mean, I think that's the whole idea, is that you have the app sort of deconstructed in pieces, and that just can sort of float around well, the that's, table. Well, that's definitely the 360-degree UI concept. Um, but the main point was, from a coding standpoint and from a technological standpoint, we've made the APIs very accessible, and we've made the paradigm the same as that which you should be used to as a, a WPF developer. But that doesn't mean that you should develop apps the same way. And what we were really trying to drive home is that the user interface and the user interaction is completely different, and there's a whole new set of challenges. So instead of making you focus on solving technical challenges and learning new APIs, we put the we, we made that as easy as possible so that you could put your effort into designing new user interfaces. And speaking of user interfaces, let's talk about some of those controls. Probably the the one that you went to first was the, the what was it, the scatter view? The scatter view control, that's scatter right. Scatter view control. And anything that's a scatter view has that basic, those properties of being able to rotate and scale and uh, move and... Uh, and what else? They, 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 so, they sort of decelerate when they when they skid? Right. So ScatterView is pretty much about um, any of the direct uh, interaction that you want for um, a multi-touch type of uh, application. So 360-degree UI, massive multi-touch, multi-user, all of those types of things that we're trying to show that Surface offers uniquely – um, ScatterView is designed to sort of make it easy to incorporate those into your applications. So anywhere you use ScatterView, you'll automatically inherit the ability to contact or um, capture various contacts to that control, be able to manipulate them with multiple fingers at the same time to do the scaling and the rotating and that kind of stuff without any effort on your part. So we get consistent interaction from application to application. Okay, so the scatter view control is definitely, I mean, a distinct control of Surface. And, and you showed us text boxes where the, it actually didn't show it, but there was a, there's a text box that pops a keyboard and we've got buttons and sliders and I mean, all of those metaphors were just fine. Any other unique controls to the Surface? Well, the other one that we showed today was the tag visualizer control. Right. So. Yeah. When we look at scenarios where people are working with physical objects, you know, sometimes you need to go deep and, and get the, the raw input data um, and process that yourself. But really, most of the time, what you're going to do when you're working with a physical object is render some kind of UI, either under, around, or next to the physical object. And you're going to want to keep that UI in sync with the position orientation of the physical object. So as it moves, you want to move and rotate your UI uh, the same way so they stay under, next to, or... I think you used the metaphor of like a board game, and I was thinking Monopoly, you know, where you like have the pieces with tags on the bottoms and it can track them around. Right. So what we do with the tag visualizer control is we make that really basic and really common scenario incredibly easy. So you give this this control basically a dictionary where you say to the control, whenever you see a tag with this unique value, here's the UI I want you to show underneath it. You just give it that information and it'll handle the rest from there. All right. And... and I mean, it's an expensive board game machine. No two ways about it. And actually, there's a conflict in, in the board game metaphor in the sense of 
the machine can't move the piece. You would roll the dice, and the board knows where it should be. Now it's counting on you. That doesn't seem to make sense that you count on you to put it there. But I could see that you could make different kinds of games that would take that input, that being able to freeform move things around and, and change that, uh, the behavior. Well, where it gets really interesting with, with the board games is that you can have a mix between virtual and physical pieces. Yeah. So the things that are going to be moving around a lot, sure, you can make those virtual, but you can also have physical aspects of it. So also, uh, one of the interesting things about the board game scenario is if you think about it, um, no, it can't enforce that you do the right thing. But the, the, the really cool part about that from my perspective, because I've, I've been thinking about the board game stuff a lot, is when you get out a board game and you're playing with your friends and you roll the dice, there's nothing forcing you to move the shoe 10 spaces, right? right. You do so because of the social pressure of the game, right. and it's part of the social interaction. And that's one of the things that Surface is designed to bring out. So I think that's kind of an exciting aspect of it. Sure. Yeah, and plus, it can insult you if you do the if you move the wrong number of pieces or something. It can you know, Absolutely, yell at yeah. you and have a lot of fun with that. Well, um, now, I remember hearing about or seeing maybe uh, a video in which somebody put a camera down on the surface and like all the photos spilled out of it. And, uh, I don't see you guys doing that anymore. W is that possible? It's definitely possible. We didn't do that today because we were doing developer type demos. Right. Um, the way that's worked in the past is that on the camera, it's a special camera that you, you could buy, but it has, uh, it's Bluetooth enabled. Okay. So we took this Bluetooth enabled phone or camera, mm -hmm. we put it, we put a tag on it. And then when the system recognizes that tag, it knows to connect to a, as a very specific Bluetooth device and download the latest photos. Okay. So it actually works. It's real. Uh, we just, we weren't demoing it today. Can you, can you see uh, a day where, uh, cameras will have that sort of surface, uh, awareness built into them? Yeah, definitely. Like a lot of devices, like yeah. cell phones, I can definitely. imagine. Well, and, and you, you, you showed two tagging solutions, one that was 256 unique tags yeah. and then one that was, well, a lot. The 128 bits. 128 so bit that's, that's tag. Like a good. So, uh, well, the interesting thing now is that you literally could allocate blocks of tag codes to vendors to ship their products pre-tagged, knowing that every tag is unique. Yep. So the, the, the tag scheme that we have for the 128 bit ones, it actually has this, uh, self allocation system built into it. So we break the 128 bits into two different sections. So there's a 64 bit version that we call the series. And then there's another 64 bit version that we call the, the value. The series, you'll, if you're generating a bunch of tags for a specific loyalty program, you'll generate one series using a random series generation tool. It's a lot like GUID gen. Right. And then that is your block. Right. And because it's, it's random, you're, you're in a large space, you're guaranteed that that's going to be unique. Yeah. So then you have 64 more bits to identify specific objects that belong to you within that block. And you can create as many of these blocks as you want. Sure. I mean, and just a huge, huge potential. So many of the, when I think of small devices in this sort of scenario, I think that the, the table form factor isn't the ideal form factor for this. Are we going to see other form factors at some point? I, I think that's something that, that needs to be explored. Yeah. Um, I, I personally really like the, the table form factor because of the social aspects of sure. it and the physical object aspects of it. You know, it, it's incredibly powerful. And you should check this out when you're walking around the venue and you see people sitting across from each other, total strangers, sitting across each from each other and collaborating, working together with the same app. 
right? Like when we were in the other room, we saw people working with this music mixing app. You know, somebody was controlling the drums and somebody else was controlling the bass. And that's, you know, that's because they're sitting face to face and they're able to have this conversation. Very cool. Yeah. And so it's social computing, uh, but not in a Facebook sense. It's in a real, a real primitive. Sense. Yeah. And, and so, uh, I liked your, your term. Uh, for, for this, we had the, uh, command line interface, the CLI, and then we had the graphical user interface, the GUI, and now we have the natural user interface or the NUI. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So the, the natural user interface, we think that's the next inflection point of how people interact with computers. Yeah. And we think that's going to be as big of a change as it was going from command line interfaces to graphical user interfaces. Is speech recognition part of the picture? I, I think it absolutely is. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the new E, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's absolutely. But there's there's a more challenging thing here. I mean, up till now, PCs, all of these devices have been personal. I mean, it's a personal computer. It's a one-person device. And they always struggle to be multiple people. Now you've got a product where single person almost doesn't make sense. Thinking about these are very different kinds of applications. There's stuff you're not going to do on this device, right? And what it, it forces you to think um, in my everyday work: what kinds of things would be more efficient if I was doing it in a collaborative way? You know, we're sitting and having a conversation with somebody while we're working on something, and you're able to do that without now with Surface. You're able to do that without leaving the technology behind. You're not going up to a whiteboard or you know sitting in a conference room um, using pen and paper, and you know not having your your technology with I you. I also tend to think that you know some of the more complex applications where you're controlling a lot of different tweaks and variables all at once, you know, uh, can can really uh, a single-person application, if it's complex enough, can be rethought, you know, to how would I do this if I had multi-touch? Absolutely. You know, absolutely. and I think uh, I'm already thinking about some ways that apps that I use can be improved. Well, I think you bring up a very key element, which is multi-touch all by itself is a big deal. Like it's Huge. Yeah, this is a, that is a, a game-changing technology. You've incorporated a bunch of other key uh, interesting elements right. into it. Yeah, so Surface is not multi-touch. Surface right. is, multi-touch is a part of Surface. Right. right. So we do a bunch of things. We take multi-touch to this crazy high level. We call it massive multi-touch. What is the limit, 40? We have no official limit. Okay. Uh, we stopped doing performance testing at 52. Wow. A year ago, we had a bug where we crashed at 100, but that was fixed. And it's really just because of the limitation of the space, isn't it, really, more than anything else? Limitation of the surface space? Mm -hmm. Yeah. At some point, there is something covering the entire screen. You can't see anything. Right. (laughs) But that would only count as one input. So, uh... So, you did this in the presentation, uh... The different elements of of uh, Surface multi-touch being one of them. We should go over the others as well. I mean, multi-user was another key part multi-user, of that. right? So you have you have many people spread around all sides of the the, the surface. Right. So that's also 360 degree UI. We call that. Yeah. So you have all these people either working individually on different tasks or related tasks, or working collectively on a single task. So there's there's no waiting turns for right. somebody else to complete. You just you jump in there and you participate. I was extremely impressed in uh, how you built a photo browser in, uh, what was it, a, less than two minutes? Uh, I don't know. Robert was keeping the time on that. I don't know what the official time. You came in at one minute and 46 seconds. Yeah. Okay. And you were explaining things along the way. Uh, yeah, I probably could have gone a little faster. But uh, obviously, you know, that was a little rehearsed. But sure. um, the point is that it's not complicated to do 
that type of thing, you know, and, and the bulk of what we were doing was WPF, yeah. you know, we it's, it's really WPF at photos. the core and then just leveraging all the hard work that that team has done to expose things like multi-touch, massive multi-touch, multi-user 360 degree UI. So and, tell us basically what you did in that demo in terms of, you know, the objects that you were using and the, in the properties that you set. Sure. Um, the the demo was to basically, uh, and this is something I think Robert has done uh, and posted a video on as well, and it is part of our hands-on labs here too, but um, uh, you basically you create a, an instance of our scatter view control, and then you uh, create a template for what you want the items inside that control to look like. So that's standard WPF stuff yeah. there. Uh, and that template, we made it a data template, meaning we were going to provide some kind of data and we needed to visualize that data somehow. And it was a very simple data template. It contained only one thing, an image. And the source for that image was the string that we were binding to. Which was the path for, uh, uh to get files, wasn't it? Correct. Here is and an so array of files. All of that was in XAML. And then one lane, one line of code, uh, was just to set the item source property on Scatterview to, the um the path of the file name and we just did that using again the the sample get picture. files yeah. uh on the directory object right. for the sample pictures yeah. so when you press f5 all these photos just show up on the desk in some random pile and you can just mess around with them yeah when you were working on the surface and doing this demo was uh, were you actually writing the code directly on the surface or were you writing it on another machine and it was being Sent to the surface. So for this demo, now you can do it either way. Okay. Um, but what what we find is that uh, internally on the surface team, uh, some people prefer one way, some people prefer others, and there's various times when one is going to be more interesting than the other. But for the purposes of this demo, I was doing all the coding on the surface unit itself. Okay. And and uh, running Vista SP1. Correct. That's just a, a surface is Vista SP1 underneath. And so you had a a regular display plugged into Surface. Mm -hmm. That's where you so look when at you're, the code window and stuff. It wasn't on the tabletop. It was on the monitor. Yeah. When you order a, a developer unit for Surface, um, you get the Surface unit, but it also exposes a panel that gives you USB ports so you can plug in a keyboard and a mouse. Because it's kind of, while the, the user interface is nice with, with no keyboard, obviously as developers, we still need access yeah. to those things. And it also has a secondary monitor port. So you just plug in a second monitor, which is what I was using. And we were using that to display on the screen as well. Uh, okay, so let's turn it around now. Can I develop Surface apps without a Surface? Absolutely, you can. Um, we are announcing today the availability of the Surface SDK on a, on a limited basis, but more than we have in the past. So everybody who attended our session today and everybody who completes the hands-on labs for Surface uh, while we're at the PDC um, will get their badge scanned, and we will send them an invitation to our community site where they will have the ability to download the SDK. And we have a simulator tool that allows you to simulate the contact input that's generated by the vision system on your PC. And we talked about this with the Internology guys. The uh, There's a sort of a, a way that you can put down finger points on different places. Is there? I haven't seen it, but is there some kind of way that you can emulate fingers 
Yeah. So there's, there's two different ways you can do multi-touch with the simulator. Uh, one is using multiple mice. So if you're ambidextrous, uh, you can use two mice at once and you can move stuff around. Uh, we also allow you to kind of click and place a contact down within the simulator. So you can have one finger down and, and leave it there and then move the mouse around and create another one. And then we've got the ability to kind of group them and move them together and rotate them together and, and do the, uh, you know, get the further apart, closer together. That type thinking of stuff. about control metaphors, uh, is, I mean, it's interesting to say that for the most part, we talk about two contacts. Is the the big enabling metaphor the rotate and the the resize, and then multi really only gets into more people doing the same thing at the same time, uh, or different things at the same time. Uh, and I've seen you draw with all the fingers at once, but I'm just trying to think of a scenario where four or five fingers would be working at once. Mixing board in a recording studio. You can do that. <laughs> uh, Robert? So, so multi-user is a big part of it. Yes. That's a, that's a key part of it. But there are also things where having uh, more than two inputs is essential for, for having fine control. So if you want to navigate a 3D scene or rotate a 3D object, having more than two inputs is, is essential. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the kinds of controls that would respond to that, uh, to, to uh, three or four fingers doing different things. And, and then I suddenly think, gee, I don't think I'm actually that coordinated. Well, let's I, look I at this another way, right? So when we talk about how many contacts are on a surface, it's not just fingers. Each of the physical objects you place there also right, counts. Of course. So imagine you have, you know, 12 physical objects, right? And yeah. then you have fingers rotating of things that are spawned from those objects. On top of that, yeah. Right. Let's say you're in a nightclub and you're a DJ. And you've got faders. You've got a fader for one piece of music, you've got a fader for another, and you've got light faders. And you want to put like four fingers, uh, on both hands, you know, so like eight different faders for different lights and move them around all at once. But you probably move them together. No, no, no. I mean, you could use your, your fingers independently of each other. All right. Well, you're the pianist. You're more articulate than I am. I think my fingers are right, a get, piano. There you yeah, go. Yeah. I just get confused. <laughs> well, I, I was surprised how, I mean, it's, we do have a piano app. Have you guys seen that? Have the keyboard, the keyboard that you're actually typing with. You're using all your fingers there. I was impressed at how well the keyboard worked for no tactile response. You can't really touch type. You need to look at what you're doing, but it worked really nicely and it was quick. But I guess because it's multi-touch, you know, you have fewer problems in that respect. Uh, but I think you generally steer clear of typing on this thing. Well, we, we try to create richer user interfaces for things as much as possible, right? But you're never going to get rid of the need to type something, type something somewhere. Yeah. I want to just take a minute to uh, bring you a message from our sponsor, Telerik. Our friends at Telerik are working hard as usual to bring you exciting new stuff for your .NET toolbox. How about two brand new control suites, RAD controls for WPF and RAD controls for Silverlight. That's right. If you started building next generation applications, you now have UI components with Telerik quality and Telerik reliability. Both product lines are derived from the same code base, and share the same API, so transition is seamless. Uh, they have many improvements in the other robust suites for ASP.NET, AJAX, and Windows Forms also, as well as the intuitive reporting tool. But product alone isn't everything. To jumpstart your projects and help you easily get up to speed with these great tools, Telerik has got a couple of unique training resources, the Telerik Interactive Trainer and Telerik TV, of course, which I'm the host of. Now that's what I call summer heat. Go check out all the details at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com. And if you happen to run into those guys, say thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. 
So do you guys develop with the simulator or do you prefer to use the Surface machine itself? Well, some of us internally do use the simulator. Obviously, we use it for a number of things. The simulator is useful for um, when you're developing parts of an application where uh, you don't necessarily need to see it on the Surface unit itself on a continual basis. You're just, you know, adding features, you're adding business logic, that kind of stuff, and then you just want to click it and run it and see what it looks like when you press the button or whatever. Um, it's also useful for uh, testing scenarios. So if you want to automate a series of input, you can use the simulator tool to record input, and then you can play that input back. So if you have very specific test scenarios that you want to run your application through, uh, we use the simulator tool internally to do that as well. Um, but it's not the end-all, be-all, right? You still need to test how it's going to run on the actual hardware. You need to understand what the user interactions for your application are, and imagining it and actually seeing somebody using it on the Surface unit are two different things. Yeah. And so you, you can think about it in terms of the simulator and use the simulator to, to kind of maybe work out some prototypes, but that doesn't completely negate the need to actually use a Surface unit. Well, right away I think back to the early 90s and us wondering what the heck we were going to use a mouse for. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, we're just not comfortable with this metaphor yet to be able to project UIs well. It's going to take a fair bit of hacking, at least for a while. Yeah, I agree. It is. It's going to take uh, a little bit of time. Like uh, Robert mentioned, we're right on the inflection point where we're just getting started with the whole NUI uh, experience and even defining what NUI means. Yeah. Um, we have some some bets that we're making in certain parts of that, um, but it is going to take some time to flesh all of this out. One thing that I wanted to ask you about was pressure sensitivity on the surface itself. Does it is it sensitive to how hard you you touch? No, so as a vision-based system, we, we don't sense pressure, but we can approximate it by, like, say, the area of a yeah. finger that's touching. So the larger that area is that's contacting the surface, you can assume that that's higher pressure. Hmm. Do you have any apps that, uh, that sort of do that, that, that sort of, uh, work with that? Well, we've done some, uh, nothing that we've actually shown or released or anything like that. Obviously, we've done testing with it. That's how we know that, mm. you know, if you, obviously, it's somewhat intuitive right. that if you press harder, your finger's going to get a little bit wider. Yeah. Um, and we've done some, some testing with some prototyping and stuff, but nothing that we've, uh, shown publicly or released. Do you think that this is something that you might put in, in a future, uh, in a future version, or is this something you want to do? Or that's interesting to you, at least. I think there's a there's a long list of things that are that are interesting but difficult with vision-based systems. Mm -hmm. um, so pressure is one that that's definitely interesting. And uh, if there was some sort of you know uh, some sort of film or something that was pressure sensitive that was transparent enough, uh, that's the key. Be some way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's part yeah part of the challenge. Of this whole product is that whole transparency effect and all those kinds of things. I'm curious, Carl. Where are you going here? What do you want to use pressure for? I'm, I'm I want to know. Well, one of the coolest uh, demos you did was where you tagged a palette and uh, the, the, a, pa a painter's palette and put it down, uh, and then you pulled up an image with actual colors in the holes that were left in the palette that shone through, and then you took a paintbrush. And then you uh, use the paintbrush to to draw. Now, if you've seen like Wacom tablets and things for artists and stuff, you know you have a, a brush or or something that, as you you push harder, more paint comes off. You brush lightly over it, less paint comes off. You know, I'm I'm just thinking there's got to be 
applications. Well, let's take that, that example. Right. Okay. So for us, when we were doing our paint application, the paint that was coming out actually matched the shape of the brush as it was touching the surface. So as you press harder on the brush, more, more of those bristles are going to touch the surface. True. So you get a broader image. So we don't need to fake it through, through, uh, a, you know, algorithmic okay. pressure. Good, good. Yeah. I can see how the, the visual system works. Yeah. That way. All right. When is this thing going to be a thousand dollars? Well, uh, <laughs> well, I, I got to think of five thousand. Yeah. If I'm a, if I'm a listener, well, and if we're going to get these in the homes, there's not a lot of people are going to spend fifteen thousand dollars on it. I'm I'm sure it's going to be a stocking stuffer for a few, you know, houses. <laughs> Price is obviously something that we want to we want to bring down sure. over time, and and as technology goes, everything comes down in price over time. Um, we've got a ways to go. Sure. Yeah, we're, we're really excited about what we have today with the discounts we have available today Absolutely. and the opportunities that we're giving people to, you know, start investing now and, and coming up with innovative solutions on top of this platform, um, and be the first to, to succeed and discover the, uh, the new types of killer apps. Uh, I guess the, the, one of the angles on this is, you know, Microsoft usually doesn't make hardware. This is, you know, other than mice and keyboards. Uh, when are we, are we going to, are we going to head, is there going to be a Dell surface at some point, an OEM? product? Yeah, we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but right now, Microsoft is the manufacturer for the, the Surface units. Well, and, and I, I think of the number of times folks have said, you know, if, if Microsoft was just making the hardware for, say, cell phones, we wouldn't have as many challenges we have around mobility. I, I'm glad you're making the hardware because you really are defining a brand new paradigm. I'm just thinking about what this is going to look like in the future. Right. We do get a lot of benefits from defining the end-to-end experience yeah. from the, the hardware aesthetics to you know, how the, the diffuser works and how it feels from a texture perspective sure. to you know, all the software underneath it. How durable is this thing? It's pretty freaking durable. We have a whack-a-mole game. Um, <laughs> and, uh, we have, we have not had to replace a tabletop yet. That's awesome. Well, and I, I know you've got them in Haras in the, the casino. I mean, that's a, that's a messy, there are people drunk there. That's right. Uh, yeah. And in fact, uh, it was kind of humorous, uh, to me to know for those of us that have been on the surface team for a long time, um, sort of the Harris deployment was, was the first, uh, real world deployment where we got to see a lot of the things that the hardware team had been designing for and the durability and, and the water resistance and all of that. Um, and I remember some of the first photos that came back to the team. People were, were replying to emails saying, Oh, I can't believe, look at all that. There's like ashtrays and drinks and everything all over the top of this. You know, that's, it's so disheartening. And, and some of us that have been on the team for a while were like, oh, it's about time. You know, that's, that's this awesome. is what we've been designing yeah. for. And this is real world proof that it works. Well, you know, actually, yeah, it was exactly the opposite statement. People were so comfortable with this that they put their normal stuff on it. If it was absolutely pristine, they're terrified of it. Exactly. We want it to be usable. Yeah. No question. Yeah, there's another thing we haven't talked about, and we haven't mentioned it all at PEC, um, but we posted up on our blog uh, last week a video of this concept, this research project that we we're looking at for the, the bar scenarios like at Harrah's. We have this glassware that's able to recognize how much liquid is in it wow. using pure optics. Wow. Yeah, so you have custom glass, and there's a prism in the bottom of the glass. So as the infrared light comes up through the surface, 
Uh, based on the level of the the liquid, you guys are crazy. Just stop it. Yeah. Stop it. Based on the level of the the liquid and how much of the prism is covered by liquid, a different amount of light will be reflected back and seen by our cameras. So you can detect that the guy needs another drink. Yeah, or has had too many. Yeah, and needs to go home. Yeah. <laughs> this glass has been filled and emptied ten times. You, sir, are drunk. Go home now. <laughs> <laughs> they should have told Mark Dunn. That well, the I- the idea is that you know there's research saying that uh, in the restaurant industry you have to ask somebody if they want to refill at just the right time to optimize the odds that they'll say yes. Right. If they have too much left, then they say no, leave me alone. If there's too little, then they're probably already you know thinking this about going awesome. home. So the water boy is waiting back behind the curtains, and a button goes off. Beep 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 beep. beep. He goes ah uh, table fifteen. He goes <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, interesting point, though. The power of optics. Throwing optics at his equation. What was that board game that used lasers? Yeah, I was thinking of that. Reflection, was it? Or ref- uh, dish- uh, it used lasers and you had mirrors on your pieces and you tried to line things up so that when you press the laser, it hit the target on the other side. So suddenly we play this optic game where we could have light entering the, bo- the, the table at different points and being detected. Yeah, we've. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that game. Somebody, this was like three, four years ago, early, early days of, of the Surface team, before it was even called Surface. And uh, somebody kind of made a, a prototype of a very similar game where it was a series of puzzles that you had to solve and it would pop up... Um, uh, basically just on-screen representations of different color lasers shining in different directions. And you had to uh, set up pieces, and we used tagged objects for this, and uh, different tags represented different types of things. So one would be a splitter into different colors, like a prism. Another would be a joiner or a duplicator, so you could... You could send a, a beam of light off in, in two directions. Cool. Now, this wasn't actually using the infrared light like you were talking about, but it was kind of a fun game to watch. People do a puzzle-solving game where they could put down different types of tagged objects, and, and the idea was to to break into this security system that, you know, without breaking a beam of laser from the, the origination point to the, to the you, you know, know, sensor. It just suddenly hit me that Pong would be a scream on this thing <laughs> if you have to be physical with the controllers. Well, we do have we do ship a, a version of that. Um, we have a four-player version that ships with the SDK as one of the samples. And you use your hands as the paddles. Well, you use your hands to move the paddles around. It's a very simplistic sample. Okay, but yeah, the two fingers grabbing the paddle and shifting it around, and then that's where you better turn off the scaling feature because <laughs> really big paddle. Yeah, it will never be rid of Pong. Pong will come forward from the command line to the <laughs> to the GUI to the NUI. Well, I was, again, just really blown away at how little code it takes to do some very, very sophisticated things. Where does the code get hairy? You know, the kind of stuff that people want to do. The demos that we've seen. Well, I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. the, the, the 3D modeling and, and that kind of stuff. Like uh, Tim Huckabee's Scripps Institute application. Pretty Pretty complex. Yeah, there are a lot of there are places where things get fairly complex. I can give you one example of uh, something that's you know somewhat well known and easy to do with with single input. It gets hard for multi input, and it's drag and drop. Right? Yeah, so you're you're frequently dragging something from one place and putting it somewhere else. The drag and drop APIs that we know and love from from Windows um, and that WPF and WinForms are you know 
wrapping. It, it's designed to be used with mouse. So that means that the thing that goes with your mouse is not this rich interactive visual cursor. Uh, it means that the operation is completely synchronous, right? So you, the API is, you know, do, drag, drop, and then the system tells you when the drag and drop is complete. That doesn't work well in a multi-input system where you can have multiple people dragging things at the same time. So you have to you know, come up with solutions to those types of problems. For this particular one, we have a sample in our SDK, but you know, it gives you an example. Well, and your scatter view control does, does all that kind of stuff, being able to move things around. Um, and you, there's also like a holder for, for photos in the photo viewer that is similar to like a drag and drop operation. It gets close and it's sort of locks into the photo holder, right? Right. So that's not something that we ship as a standalone control today. Okay. Uh, we're looking at that for the future. Uh, but our applications do use what we call the uh, the stack control, where you can you can drag a bunch of photos together to, to create a stack. And then as a, as a whole, you can move those things around and sort through them. Cool. Doug, did you have a comment on it? No? I, I didn't want me to change gears too quickly on this, uh, but... Thinking about the programming model, you sort of touched on it. You, you, you triggered in me. This is inherently sort of multi-threaded code. Do we do we get into tough bits here when multiple things are happening at the same time, and you know some mutex collisions or anything like that? Well, the nice thing is the the problem's not any different right. than it is anywhere else. Um, it, just because we're doing multi-input doesn't mean that multi-threaded problems change in any way. So uh, we haven't done a lot to make that any easier on you, um, but all of the great things that .NET has to help you deal with those types of things, um, it, you just get along for the ride. Um, one of the issues where it might be a bigger uh, problem is uh, for like an XNA developer. Um, if an XNA developer, uh, they would be programming against what we call our core API. Right. Um, and typically they do things on more of a, a polling model as opposed to an event-based model. So instead of us raising an event, which we, which we do at the core layer, but we found that most of the XNA developers don't use that, um, that they will just poll and ask for give me the current state of all the contacts that are on the surface. And the code that they're using to do that is sometimes on the main thread and sometimes it's on a different thread. Now, the problem is the same as if you're polling, say, a game controller sure. or anything else like that. Um, but that's where things can get a little bit uh, dicey from a multi-thread I mean, XNA is typically a game's development environment, right? I mean, I, I, the demos you did were all XAML and, and C-sharp. XNA, isn't that mostly C++ or no, still XNA C-sharp? Is, XNA is still C-sharp. Okay. Um, it, it's the essentially a replacement for managed DirectX. It lets you do rich uh, 3D graphical types of things right. that runs on Windows, uh, Xbox, and Zune, and Surface. But the but the libraries to work with it are, are sort of lower level. You said you called them core APIs. Right. I mean, you're you're down there at the pixel level saying, you know, what to render where, writing lots of custom shaders and things like that. So not for the faint of heart. Right. And, and that's <laughs> why, why we, we, uh, we focus a lot on the WPF side of things. So we support sure. XNA, but for the WPF development, we're trying to create this library of custom controls so you can just, you know, easily a bit higher level. Right. Yeah. Which so another example, another example of where things get different on Surface is just with the basic input events. When you get a contact up event, it's not like a mouse up event where you can assume that, hey, that up is for the same thing that we just got a down event for. Right. Right. So you can have these things interleave, so you need to really keep track of 
Well, it was something you mentioned in, in, uh, at the, the session as well, where if there are three fingers down on the button, it's not until all of them are up that the up has really happened. Until the button. click has happened. Or the click has really right. happened. Right. So you'll get the, the input up events, but the, the button click won't happen until everybody's in agreement. Right. Yeah, th- th- these are interesting little problems that I'm sure we didn't think of in advance. You found those as you went along. <laughs> Stumbled into many of them. So, well, so we, we've, we've tackled a lot of these problems over the last, you know, several years of working on Surface and, and try to wrap as much of that up into the APIs as possible so that, you know, people get to focus on, on really the, the business logic and, and the, the interaction design of their applications. All right. What is the coolest thing you've ever seen Surface do? Oh, man. That's a tough question. For me, I'm going to say the glassware thing, uh, cause that, that, Doing that demo, I designed the UI for it. With the it. prisms? Yeah. That is very cool. That's the demo that got me 30 seconds to talk to Bill G. Wow. So. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, did I, he, did I he shake a... his ass at, you know, in happiness? <laughs> he, uh, he, he, he smiled and he nodded at me and then he moved on to look at the next demo. Oh, so. wow. <laughs> yeah, so th- this is at the, uh, the, the hardware science fair we have internally where there's all kinds of cool stuff. And wow. Just yeah, that's a tiny cool. part of it. Um, for me, I think the coolest thing that I've seen so far, um, and one of the great things about the service team is so many people are passionate about defining what Nui is and all the great things that we can do that we have a lot of people just developing their own pet projects and their own interesting apps. And one of our uh, developers created sort of a, uh, uh, you mentioned a DJ solution before right. he, he did sort of a, a DJ slash VJ type of application where um, not only could you mix in different types of music or uh, samples or clips, but you could uh, modify visualizations and you could combine visualizations into uh, the secondary monitor port, which would project. So imagine a dance club type scenario where you are live modifying the visualizations with your fingers doing scaling and wow. rotating and all that kind of interesting stuff. I, I thought that was a pretty compelling app. I've, I've thought a few times that uh, Surface is interesting when combined with a vertical screen like a projection screen. I, I just, you know, it's so mundane, but I've always found it dumb to, you know, select sh- TV shows from that bigger screen. I'd like to do it from the, the coffee table and then it shows up up there. Or a big 65 inch plasma TV, for example. Yeah. It's funny you would pick that number, but okay. <laughs> that scenario is actually quite compelling to a lot of us on the, uh, on the team. Um, and, uh, you know, those are just the types of things that get us excited about what, where Surface and Nui in general can go. Like I said, we're just on the cusp and all of these really cool things, you know, we need the partners out there to create those really compelling applications. So uh, what about other orientations for the product? I mean, the sort of drafting board angle, the the vertical angle. What about Minority Report? So That's a movie. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, no, thanks. (laughs) So right now we're focused on the the the, the flat horizontal. Uh, and conceivably, somebody could take it and you know tilt it, tilt it somehow. Isn't that sort of like? Don't, isn't there a lot of like branding things around uh, Surface that you don't allow developers to do to it to modify it in certain ways or OEMs maybe? Maybe it's OEMs. I don't know. That's not me. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, um, 
but but really like if when the thing's not horizontal you lose a lot of the social aspects of it sure and the ability to have objects sit on it without sliding away yeah, you've now made it a particular orientation and you're right i mean sliding objects off is a big deal you would get like basically i suppose the from an object recognition standpoint or physical object interaction you could get like if you hold it up against <laughs> the surface in a vertical type of thing and you would uh you would lose some of the the 360 degree ui obviously right. some of the multi user and you would Definitely. you would you would lose some of the social aspect that we're really trying to make uh you know surface shine with those those different attributes, so you lose an awful lot of them if you, if you modify from the horizontal from the to the vertical. That's angle. not to say that the vertical scenario is not compelling for a lot of things. Um, I'm just not r- sure that that's surface. Right. That's not what this product is about. Uh, one of the demos you did right at the end, which was the modification of that other WPF app, where you were you combine the tags and the screen. I thought very cleverly that you had these tags for making a T-shirt, and it, so it was a T-shirt card that had a, a custom tag on it, and then would put it down on a picture, and then you could tinker with the shirt to make it the way you wanted to, and then when you were happy with it, you'd hit the button for buy, and then you took the card to set, to actually buy it. Um, yeah, so what we were trying to show there is that you can have the same types of scenarios, and this gets to kind of what Robert was was hinting at in his summary, is solve the same problem, but do so in a more compelling way to the users for your application. So take advantage of the unique attributes that Surface offers to make your application more compelling than it is with a mouse and a kiosk. Sure. Well, and, and just the fact that the, because the card's got a unique identifier on it, it now knows what you did. So you now have a way to carry away your content or your your work from the surface. Correct. So now um, I'm, I'm envisioning your 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 photo finishing shop where I bring my camera in or my phone in, which has got that unique tag on it. I pull the pictures out. I spend an hour playing with them, figuring out which ones I want to print and so forth. Then I say, okay, I'm done. That's great. Goodbye. Pick my device up. Come back the next day, and the device is still the identifier for. They actually make you completing the purchase. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of scenarios like that that are enabled. I really think the combination of Bluetooth makes makes this very interesting way. Can you imagine like sort a sort of portable hard drive with uh, Bluetooth on it, where you could just you know throw pictures at it and it would just copy to to and from you know camera to hard drive or or uh, some sort of port that was connected across the wire across the network to another. Another computer where you could just uh, be copying things in and out. Sorting things out. Well, two cell phones. We take our two cell phones and put them down, want to share some information in a very visual way rather than, you know, how many times do we, I need to send you a contact that the whole beaming process on a cell phone is kind of painful. I think the Surface would be an expensive but compelling way to, to move that data around. Yeah, there's so there's so many opportunities like that that are out there for developers to go solve these problems using the the tools that Surface provides, and that's why we're really excited about being able to offer the SDK and the hardware up uh, for broader availability. Oh, and thank you for doing that. That's uh, I can't wait to get my dirty little hands on it personally. We can't wait to see the apps that you build. All uh, right, you guys have any last minute uh, words or calls to action for the? for the listeners? Well, our, our call to action you know, is what I said in the session, which is really to 
to join us in, in, in changing the world of how people interact with technology. Is there any way for the listeners that aren't at PDC to get the SDK at this point? So what they can do is go and uh, go to surface.com and uh, get the, the order form that we have there. Okay. You can get a developer unit. When you get a developer unit uh, that comes with five seats uh, for using the Surface SDK but do you have to have a Surface? That's what we're doing today. So today, oh, okay. to, to get the SDK outside of our attendees at PDC... Right. Uh, is, is to, to, to buy order, a service. To get the hardware. And that way you're able to work closely with the hardware, get familiar with it and sure. understand it. Right. Uh, as opposed to, you know, if, if someone was just listening to the show, if they weren't at PDC interacting with the surfaces, um, they wouldn't, um, completely understand the, the types of interaction designs and capabilities yeah, that we really have. You really have done, gone to some lengths here to give us a chance to get some familiarity with it before we commit to anything. Right. That, that's a key way to uh, being familiar with the unique capabilities we have sure. is, is really essential being able to build a great application. All right, guys. Robert Levy, Doug Kramer, thank you very much. Thank you. And, uh, thanks for a great presentation and a great product. Yeah. Thanks for having us. You bet. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com Got a transmitter band by the FCC Yes, I'm a talk